Hey, podcast listeners, Rhea here. Just wanted to let you know that I'm accepting applications for the last session of the Fundraising Accelerator. If you want to raise more money from major donors and high net worth individuals, this is the place for you. The session will run from October to November 2021. Special pricing is available for students who enroll before July 31st. Check it out at RhiaWong.com. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Rhea Wong with you once again. So, this must mean it's Nonprofit Lowdown. I am super excited because I have two people on my pod today, two friends that I've known for many years. And it's been such a pleasure because I actually knew them back in the day when they first started their organization, which is now America on Tech. So, we are talking about how to rock a nonprofit startup because these two are experts in that. Please welcome Jessica Santana and Evan Robinson to the show. Co-founders, Evan is the president, Jessica is the CEO, and we're going to talk about not just how to start a nonprofit organization, but what it means to manage as co-founders, because I also think that's super interesting. Welcome to both of you. Thanks. Really happy to be here. So let's get started. Just maybe you could start us off. Can you tell us a little bit about the origin story of America on Tech and how it started on a Starbucks napkin? I love this story. Yeah, for sure. I always tell people that America on Tech really was not supposed to be a nonprofit organization in terms of like the growth trajectory. I think when Evan and I first started the organization, we very much realized that it came from a place of passion and a place of wanting to serve. And so the vision that we had set out really early stages was very simple, which was to bring technology education to the community that we're from. Obviously, over the last seven years, that has absolutely evolved. And when we think about that time when we were at Starbucks in 2014, and we were so upset and talking about the lack of diversity, equity, and inclusion in technology and how so many young people in the communities that we're from and were being left behind, I don't know that we would have said that we'd be here as the organization that we are today. The origin story, I would also have to say that it was definitely and incredibly difficult to get from an organization that was just trying to serve students to one now that now has staff, that has a budget, that has funders, a board, etc. And also that we're operating nationally, even outside of the community that we first intended to serve. And so I think the thing that has really been true about the origin story since the beginning of the organization is that we operate with a student first mentality and anything that we do is in the interest of students. And so I think because we are an organization that has always committed to doing the things that we say we're going to do, I think that is what has led it from its origins to where it's at now. Great. And Evan, could you fill us in a little bit more on like the personal side? Because I know that you and Jessica were BFF before you started this organization and, and obviously both being folks of color in tech, this is something that you'd experience firsthand, sort of this problem that you're solving. Yeah, certainly. So Jessica and I became best friends in college. It was my freshman year, her sophomore year. She's a year ahead of me in school. First, we met socially on campus, but our friendship really solidified when we did a Ernst & Young leadership conference together in college. So during the leadership conference, we bumped into each other and it was a familiar face. We realized that we both were from Syracuse University and so we were just chatting at the conference. At the end of the day, 
train stop at 42nd Street, Times Square, waiting for the A train. And we seen each other again on the pedal to the train. So we got on the train together and we were just having an hour-long chat headed back into Brooklyn about getting to college, our aspirations post-college. But most importantly, there was this synergy in our conversation regarding like our want to do something for the community that we were coming from. We were both born and raised in East New York, Brooklyn. And so we were having a chat about how can we get back to the community. So our end, we both get up to get off the train and realize that we were getting off at the same train stop. And so Jessica and I really grew up about five blocks away from each other, but we had never met until college. And it was because the separation of the neighborhood. Essentially, I got off at one exit of the train stop and she got off at one exit of the train stop and went one direction and I went one direction. So we never really crossed paths growing up. And so Syracuse University was what brought us together. And then that friendship and that spark is what has driven us the last decade or so with the launch of AOT. And so I think another important thing is that Jess and I have always been great tag team partners. And we can unpack that more during this conversation. But we really have found a groove of like how to be best friends, how to be business partners, how to be accountability partners, how to be confidants. And I think that speaks volumes to our friendship, but then also the working relationship that we have together at AOT. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And we are definitely going to unpack that. But before we get there, I just want to give folks a little bit of an idea. So you all first started as New York on tech. You've now become America on tech because you've gone national. You started in 2014. It's been a wild six years. Is that right? Six years since you first started. Can you tell me a little bit about what has that growth trajectory been? And Jessica, you talked about some of the critical success factors. I'd be curious if you could outline for the listener some of those. So Jess, we'll start with you and then Evan will jump to you. When we started in 2014, we didn't have a development plan, a fundraising or a strategy plan, nothing like that. And so really because this organization started on the back of Starbucks napkins, we pulled tremendous amount of resources at the in-kind level uh, by being able to tap our friends. I would think from the first standpoint, Teach for America, we're just teachers at the time, recruited a set of 20 students to participate in the pilot program. All of the students were from Brooklyn, New York. We had a fundraising event. We had multiple fundraising events, actually, and we were able to raise a grand total of $14,000. And (laughs) that was the money that we basically used for the pilot program. We actually had no intentions on continuing to fundraise because at the time, Evan and I were also working full time at Accenture and within the technology industry. And so Mericon Tech was really our 6 p.m. till 2 a.m. sometimes while we actually finished our 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. job. And so thinking about the last seven years, we went from an organization that's just started working with 20 students with a $14,000 budget and quite frankly, actually a $0 budget because that first year we actually had to raise that money. So an organization now that has served a total of 3,500 students across New York and Los Angeles, and we have a budget of $2.5 million. We also started as an organization that had zero board of directors outside of Evan, myself, and a close friend that we formed the, the corporation with to now be in an organization that has a board of directors of 12 members in New York and Los Angeles as well. And we have a staff of 12 people that will actually be growing to 20 people at the end of this year. And so it's been tremendous growth over a very short period of time. But I'm very happy to say that the impact of the program has been that 85% of our students have actually graduated from computer science and information systems programs and or are working in the technology industry. 
That's really great. So, Evan, could you elucidate for us some of the things that you think were critical to your success, especially in the early years? Because as you say, neither of you came from the nonprofit background. You were doing these very grassroots. And so I'd be curious, like looking back now with the benefit of hindsight, what are some of the key things that you think you did or that happened that really fueled your growth? Yeah, that's a great question. So first I want to say we actually started as Brooklyn on tech. So it went from Brooklyn on tech to New York on tech to America on tech. So there's really a lot of evolution to what we've been doing. But first I think, yes, Jessica and I came into this space from a technical background, but we immersed ourselves in as much knowledge as we could acquire. So we spent a lot of time at the Brooklyn Heights Library, as well as the Grand Army Plaza Library in Brooklyn, and really just read through every book, literally, that they had on nonprofits and nonprofits management. And that was our first step. Then after we realized that we still had a lot of gaps regarding our knowledge of like what to do, we started to reach out to people that we knew in the nonprofit space. Now, the good thing here is that Jessica and I are a lot of nonprofit enrichment programs, and we went through programs firsthand. So we then started to reach out to people that were our program managers or people that were the presidents and executive directors and CEOs of, of nonprofits that we went through and we just reached out to them for advice. And so we were able to get really great advice up front from individuals that had been in the nonprofit and social impact space for a long time. And then I think the the good thing that made us successful is that Jessica and I are multifaceted in our knowledge. So we have the technical background coming from Accenture, but then as undergrads, Jessica studied accounting. I also studied economics. And so we understood financial statements and how to use Excel and PowerPoint, the whole nine, how to strategize, how to implement road mapping and how to collect data. And so I think the biggest thing that I want to point out too is Once we launched our program, we didn't just launch. We had certain data collection metrics in mind already. And I think that was extremely important because when you think about fundraising and you think about the growth of your organization, what's very important is how you capture data and how you storytell. And that was something that we always kept in mind at the grassroots level of like, okay, this is what we're said we're going to do. Now, how do we prove we did that? And then now how do we wrap it up with a nice bow to storytell? in order to galvanize mentors, in order to galvanize volunteers, in order to galvanize students, funders, etc. And so over the years, we started to really build a great community of advocates who were supporting our work because they realized we said we were going to do one thing, we did it, and we storytelled it in a great way to keep the momentum going. And so I'll stop there, but I think that's really talks about like how we've been able to kind of move yeah. forward. And I'll just lift up something else sort of from the outside looking in because I've known you guys since you first kind of started. I think you were grantees, a foundation that I'm on the board of. And so I remember the early days. The one thing that I think is really instructive too is that you both implemented and employed this lean method, which is a tech methodology where you were piloting ideas and then you were making adjustments and pivots. Because I think sometimes we imagine that like, oh, I'm going to get it down on paper and it's going to go exactly the way I planned, which life happens. It's never going to go exactly as you planned. So I think if you could you speak a little bit about how you think about pivots and innovation? 
I think that's something that the nonprofit sector could learn from is definitely lean startup methodology. I think that so many times we are implementing and executing on programs that don't work for the young people we're trying to serve or whoever it is that we're trying to serve. And as a result of that, you keep implementing programs that never really solve the problem that you're looking to solve. And so I think for us, we've always been extremely experimental with the program design. We're always looking at the theory of change that the core of what we're trying to actually accomplish with the young people in our programs. And we're also not afraid to tell funders like, hey, this is what we tried this year. We don't necessarily think that this is the thing we're going to continue with because the data says A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and it would not be in our best interest to continue this route because it would be a waste of your resources as well as a waste of ours. And so the way that we think about lean startup in our mind is one, figuring out what problem you're trying to solve. Two, figuring out a design for the program that at the minimum level needs to be true in its design in order for you to actually address that problem. And then three, being able to collect data collection points along the way that can inform you of whether or not the assumptions you've made in the beginning have actually been true at the end of whatever pop-up pilot or project you're actually implementing within the organization. And then knowing that it's okay to be wrong in your assumptions and not being afraid of losing out on money or losing out on grants just because of the fact that something that you assumed in the beginning is not working. I'll give you an example of how that happened at America on Tech. In the beginning stages, we were a technical training program with a one-to-one mentoring model. Each young person in our program not only got technical training, but they also got a one-to-one mentor. As we started to scale the organization and as we started to grow the organization, we realized that one, the one-to-one mentoring matching process was extremely flawed. Two, mentors and mentees would often disappoint each other if one didn't come to a session and the other one wasn't communicating. And then three, we realized it was not a very scalable model. And for us, knowing that there are 1 million students in New York City, how were we ever going to get 1 million mentors to actually serve in the capacity that we needed them to serve? And so... After year one, we completely dropped the one-to-one mentorship. We kind of established a group coaching model. After the group coaching model in year two, we were like, this is also not working because if you look at the data, attendance shows that the young people come at higher rates to the technical training sessions than they come to the group coaching sessions. And while these professional development sessions are important, we don't think this is the crust of what, we, of what we do. And so by year three, we said, well, what were the three sessions uh, that needed to be true in order for the young people to be successful in coaching relationships? And for us, we settled on having a professional development session on resumes, one on speed interviewing, and then one on communication and preparation for internships. And that's been the thing that has helped us continue in that route and engaging mentors in that way, as opposed to doing things that felt like it actually wasn't an interest of our young people. So that's an example. When we were pitching to funders in the beginning, the one-to-one mentorship model, and then in year two, saying, hey, we're not going to go that route anymore. They were like, well, why? And having to show the data to back that up, I think was really compelling for them to be on board for the pivot. Yeah, there are a couple of things that I would really want to lift up that are important, which is number one, like so deeply understanding your program model and having data to show that you're not afraid to change. Like it's okay to be wrong. It's not okay to keep doing the wrong thing when you have evidence that it's not the right thing. And then I think the other thing that I really want to lift up for the the audience here is being able to approach your funders as partners in this. Because I think sometimes we get so freaked out that 
they have the power and they're not going to give us the money if we don't give you exactly the metrics and exactly the way that we said. And the fact is they're people and they understand that things don't happen exactly the way they're supposed to on paper. But being able to treat them as partners as opposed to like your overlords is a really important step there. Evan, I want to go back to something you said. So as you reflect on the advice that you got from some of your mentors, what is some of the most valuable advice that you got or still think about? That's a hard one, actually. But I think that's a hard one. But I can say that three things I immediately come to mind. because One just just said one, a good theory of change. And to be honest with you, when we had first came into the space, we didn't know anything about theories of change and logic models and all of that. And, but people kept mentioning theories of change. What's your theory of change? What's your theory of change? So we went and learned as much as we could about how to structure one really well. And I think that's something that we're really good at, especially as, as we have built additional ones for all of our programs. Uh, so that's one. I think two, I would say the, the advice that we received in regarding like, how do you capture data? And everyone said that that was going to be extremely important, especially if we were going to be diversifying our funding pools, if we were going to be trying to get funding from private foundations, corporate foundations, government funding, individual funding, high network funding. And so the way that we capture data, mine the data, and leverage that data to storytelling was going to be extremely important. And that was told to us in the beginning. And lastly, for the third one, I would say the importance of building a board of directors that actually cares. And so it was told to us very on that people sometimes will chase certain board of directors because of the companies that they work for or the titles that they have. And while on paper, the title and the company looks fancy, what you really need is a board of directors that truly supports your mission and truly supports the work and the individuals that you are leading the organization. And so that's been a lens that Jessica and I have always approached this work from, especially when building our board. Like we really bring on people that are invested into the work that we're doing that really have a impact lens in mind in regards to what we're trying to do with the students. And I will stop there. Like, I think those are the big three key things that were told to us early on that we never dropped sight on as we've continued to grow over the years. Yeah, I'm really glad that you said that, Evan, because I say in my training that desperation is a stinky perfume. Like if you're trying to get people on your board and you're coming from a place of desperation as opposed to a place of true partnership, true commitment, first of all, it's a huge turnoff. And second of all, they're never really going to be a partner in the work. Okay, let me change tacks a little bit. I'm not asking you to air any dirty laundry here, but I'm really curious as co-founders and best friends, how have you really managed growing an organization? Because you know, I imagine there can be growing pains and some tension. How have you negotiated that? Like, how do you think about decision making and things like that? Yeah, I think that one, the thing that has helped is that Evan and I were friends before American Tech. And because we were friends before American Tech and our relationship was solid, we always knew that going into this work, that was the thing that we were going to lean on because so much of our why and so much of our purpose, while I have an individual why and individual purpose, Evan also has his why and his purpose. And when you actually look at the fundamentals of what the why and the purposes are on an individual level and talk about it from a collective perspective, him and I are very aligned with one, what the vision we have for ourselves are, and but then also what the vision 
is that we have for the communities that we serve. And so I think that at the core, that's what has made the relationship work. Do him and I have differences of opinion? We absolutely do. Evan and I are very different in our approach to problem solving. We're also very different in the ways that we communicate. We're also very different in the ways that we think about leadership and management. But I think that one thing we do really well is one separation of duties. And so I'm really much on the fundraising and the program partnership side. Evan really takes care of the business side of America on tech, like managing the board, managing the finances, managing operations and compliance. And I think those complementary skills have also helped in the relationship. And I think the last thing I'll say is that even in the moments where maybe we're getting a press opportunity or visibility or an award or a recognition, we're always happy for one another. We're always tag teaming on these kinds of things anyway. So it's not like we're applying blindly. Him and I are actually strategically determining where we're going to put our time and our energy in terms of bringing visibility and marketing to the organization. And so we're very intentional in that way. And sometimes we're nominating each other for these kinds of things. And so I think my advice for co-founders or for people who are engaging in business relationships is to really think about, is this a person who, if I were no longer here anymore, it, will they carry out the vision in the way that we promised the vision to be carried out for our communities? And in my mind, that answer has always been yes in my partnership with Evan. And I don't know if he feels differently, but I'll let him chime in. No, I think Jessica was spot on. I think the reason that we have been successful in business together and running a nonprofit is because of the foundation of our friendship. And so to answer it more directly, yes, we do argue, right? And we do disagree, but I think it, we always bounce back and it's because of the friendship that's there. And it's off the shared understanding of like, we are in this space to do the same exact thing, which is to positively like impact students and to positively impact and give students that particularly come from underestimated communities the opportunities that are not always equally distributed to them in their neighborhoods, their schools, and their communities. So that's at the essence of like our friendship and then our core. I would say one thing that Jessica mentioned that I think is extremely important is when we first started, we were kind of doing the same thing. We were working on finances together. We we're working on accounting together. We we're working on program design together. We we're working on going to the same funder meeting together. But as we grew as an organization, it was, in, it was important for us to establish a true org chart and in a true kind of like roles and responsibilities that we can hold each other accountable to. And so I think for that long-term vision for co-founders, when you get out of that phase of like you tag teaming on everything, you didn't have to create the structure and the infrastructure that says, this is who's in charge of this. This is who's in charge of this. This person reports here, this person reports here. And it keeps everyone in the org accountable. And then have conversation if things need to change. Things are constantly changing in our organization. But change is important. Okay, so I have two last questions, and I, I know we have some questions from folks. So here on Nonprofit Lowdown, we're into real talk. So talk to us about one of the biggest mistakes that you've made in the startup phase and what you've learned from it. Evan, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I think one of the biggest mistakes was not hiring a grant writer soon, whether that was full-time or a contractor or part-time. Get a grant writer <laughs> because a lot of our time was spent on grant writing. That was a skill set that we had to also learn. There's a certain way you have to write grants. There are certain words you have to use. There's certain there's a science to it. So I would say not hiring a grant writer earlier was something that I look back and say we should have done sooner. 
And then I would also probably say, once we realized that this was going to be something that we were going to do full time, and this was going to be actually like a nonprofit business, like paying ourselves sooner, especially when we made the transition from working full time to running the organization. So those would be my two. What about you, Jess? I was definitely going to say hire a grant writer sooner. I actually think that was probably our biggest fail just because the amount of time and effort it actually takes to write really good grants and then cultivate those relationships while you're still managing programs and HR and finance and boards was incredibly challenging and really not a good use of our time. So I would have to echo that. Okay, so on the flip side, and this last question before we open it up, what are some things that you think that you did really well that you would recommend to other nonprofit founders? Yeah, I think that the first thing that we did really well was actually create hype around the things that we were doing. We didn't have any data in our first year, but we were so excited about bringing these opportunities to young people that we were posting on social media. We were inviting people to see the program. We were asking people to write about us to get the word out about the work we were doing so that they can see articles and they can feel inclined to give us funding and want to partner with us. So I would say create hype around the work that you're doing, even if you only have a set of 20 students, those 20 students felt like a million students to us in year one. And I think the second thing that we did really well was create a program roadmap in the same way that technology startups create product roadmaps. We created a program roadmap for what we wanted year one to accomplish, year two to accomplish, and year three. Once year three came around, we developed the next three years and what the program was going to look like from year four to six. And so I think beginning stages really sit down, create hype about the work you're doing, and then also match your words with your actions by creating a program roadmap. What about you, Evan? I would say getting involved with every aspect of the business. And that's something, literally, if we're talking about the start of the organization, when we first started, we were handing out flyers at barbershops, flyers at laundromats, flyers at check cashing places, anywhere we thought that a student or a guardian or parent would be that could reach students that we were looking to serve, we were there. But we went through every phase of our business. Like we talked about one of our areas of improvement would have been hiring our grant writers sooner. However, we did grant writing for a long time. Yes, that would have been an area of improvement, but because Jessica and I spent so much time also grant writing, we understand how to grant write and we understand how to give feedback to our grant writer. And so I think one of our biggest like positives of running the organization is that we didn't skip any stage of the organization. Like we were maintenance, we were strategy, we were CEOs, executive directors. And so it really gave us a wealth of knowledge in regards to how to build how to, and how to sustain our organization. And then now, once we got an understanding of how to do every function of the organization, it made hiring easier, and it, remained, it made also retaining talent that was going to help the organization grow um, easier. Yeah, Evan, that's such a great point. My husband says this a lot, which is, I'm not asking you to do anything I haven't done myself. And for me, that is everything from dumpster diving to find retainers, because I've done that, to ordering the pizza, to being in a high-level donor meeting, right? Like, I've done all of the things. Okay, I know folks want to chat with you. So, Marvin, you want to ask your question? Thanks, Rhea, and thank you, Jessica and Evan, for sharing your stories today. It's been really awesome to hear about your trajectories. I'd love to hear more about data. Can you talk about the evolution of your data needs and how 
you sort of made those decisions, especially moving from Brooklyn to New York to America. How did you figure out what you needed to measure and why? In our first year, the only thing we wanted to measure was student learning in the technical trainings, as well as feedback that they had on the mentoring relationship. For us, we were not seeking out any grants at that time because we didn't know that we could. And we also were not accountable to any funders at that time to report on any metrics. And so for us, what made sense was obviously the learning outcomes for the young people that we were serving, as well as the feedback that both them and the mentors were saying about the structure of the program, et cetera. Once we got our first institutional grant, we realized that for us, the data was going to have to be around the learning outcomes, but then also the expected lifetime trajectory of the young people in our program. So it went from this is what they learned at America on Tech to this is what they learned at America on Tech and this is how they're applying it in the future. So for us, this meant collecting high school graduation rates. This meant collecting graduation rates from college later on. This also meant collecting how many of them were pursuing computer science and information systems majors. And then from the volunteer side, because so many volunteers actually teach our courses, it was collecting feedback from them about the instructional materials, how they felt teaching the courses, whether or not this was actually industry aligned and what were the improvements we would need to make in order for the curriculum to work so that the students would be prepared for opportunities within the industry. Now, year seven, we have a burgeoning group of college level alumni who are now getting jobs who are graduating from the program. So for us, the data has now become what is your household income? How much money are you making in your first job? How many offers that you get during your senior year? What feedback do you have looking back at your experience as a young person in our programs that you would want to make sure we implement for current students? And so I think that each phase of your organization is going to actually inform you of what your data needs need to be. And you also will have funders. If you're really good at developing funder relationships, you also have funders that will suggest that certain metrics are being collected that would be really helpful. I would also say that you should look at comparable nonprofit organizations and look at the kind of numbers they're reporting on their website so that it kind of gives you an insight into how they're thinking about collective storytelling from an external perspective, because sometimes the metrics that an organization that's comparable to yours is using and is publicizing and is sharing on their website could very much be the metrics that you should also be collecting. And so I would say external research on comparable nonprofits would also be helpful. Yeah, that's such an interesting point too, Jess, because I think when you're in the youth development field, what you're really trying to do is very long-term, like at Breakthrough, we started with middle school kids, but what we were really tracking was their wage at the age of 35 and whether or not our intervention at middle school actually put them on a trajectory for a middle class income. But there's a long way between 12 and 35. And so I think that that is tricky. So it's kind of the indicators along the way. All right, Takesha, you have a question. Yes, good afternoon. Thank you all for sharing your story and congratulations on the success of your organization. You already touched on this, but if you don't mind expanding, you mentioned building a community of advocates and building hype around what you were doing. But I was going to ask you what your strategy was as you were starting up in the first year or two around creating awareness and raising the startup funds on a grassroots level. Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say first, and Jess, feel free to jump in once I get like my data unload. 
first Jessica and I sat down, we thought about digital assets and email copy and text message copy that we would need to create all of these assets. On a, we then decided on a day that we would announce the launch of Brooklyn on Tech. And so we got in alignment with that. On that day, we actually had a countdown until the launch, actually. We went and secured all of the names across all of the social media sites. So Facebook, Twitter, whatever was popular in the beginning so that we had the names. Then we rolled out all of the digital assets counting down to the launch. Once the launch happened, we just went on guerrilla marketing <laughs> with all of our friends and anyone that we knew that was in the technology industry and in the education industry. And so from the technology side, we reached out to a lot of our friends that we were working with or had the internships with or went to college with that were working in the tech space. On the education side, Jessica and I just reached out to all of our friends that were working at Teach for America. And that was how we got our first kind of like core group of supporters. Going into year two, many people that we were working with started to bring in their friends and peers into the organization. And so that's how the community went from mainly people that Jessica and Evan knew personally to individuals that were now being attracted to the organization because of what we were doing. Not to say our friends weren't attracted because of what we were doing, but our immediate buy-in from our friends and our contacts were myself and Jessica. Everyone else after that were individuals that were solely hearing about what we were trying to do and the impact that we were having. I would say from a fundraising lens, from a grassroots, Jess mentioned earlier that we had really small micro community events. And then that's how we raised our initial funding. And then we went into accelerators. And that's not something that we've covered here yet. But when you're starting out, I would extremely suggest that you go into accelerators that give you some sort of seed capital for your organization. You'll a lot of times get the seed capital with no strings attached, depending on the accelerator that you go to. And it helps you build a community of additional supporters and funders because that accelerator will have access to a community that you're sometimes most likely not going to be a part of yet. And we just got aggressive, I would say, in year two of just joining as many accelerators as possible, going in, kicking butt for lack of words, and really just showing people that we were going to be a great organization. And then from those accelerators, we gained more supporters and then kept going. But we got to a point where accelerators were no longer things that we needed to do because it was requiring more from us in that accelerated, more capacity that we had at the time to actually run the organization. So once we got to that point of realizing, okay, we've done a lot of accelerators and we're great here, we then started to just focus on our organization 100%. I'm actually in an accelerator now, and it was exciting to hear you speaking earlier about the area of change and the lean startup and starting out with pilots, because those are the types of things that are being discussed. So thank you so much for that. Appreciate it. I'm sitting here laughing because as I hear your strategy, essentially you treated this as a product launch. Correct which is very much informed by your own tech background, I would imagine. Okay, I have one last question and then we will wrap it up. Go ahead, Marvin. Thanks, Ria. Just curious to hear more about your relationships with other nonprofits. I've heard some founders have really collaborative relationships with other organizations in the same space or line of work and others do not. So I'm curious to hear what you've experienced and are there things that you wish the ecosystem did better to support communities as well? That's a great question. Yeah, for sure. I am a firm believer that we should not reinvent wheels, but we should definitely put rims on them. And I think that in American Tech, we do a really good job at partnering with other organizations that make sense 
to try and accomplish the things that we cannot accomplish with our young people. So for example, when we were just starting out and we had our first group of alumni, we didn't have any college support. We didn't have any alumni support, but what we did really good at was developing relationships with college access organizations or college serving organizations to provide our students who were in college at the time with scholarships that we didn't have to fundraise for, with internships that we didn't have to procure, as well as provide them with college persistence support that we just didn't have the capacity to do ourselves. I would also say that another example of this was this past summer, knowing that internships is such a really big thing for young people. We partnered with the T. Howard Foundation and two of our alumni. One of them is going to Comcast. The other one is going to, I forgot what the other company is, but being able to broker that relationship was really helpful. It helps us achieve our internship placement, but then it also helps our young people get internships. And it also shows camaraderie between two organizations that are very much trying to solve a similar issue. I'll say all that to say that we're definitely not shy from partnerships as long as it makes sense for us to invest our time and energy and resources in cultivating the relationship because it actually yields a return on investment for us as an organization, but also ultimately for the young people we're trying to serve. What I think that nonprofits can do better, I think that nonprofits can definitely have some more self-awareness about the things that they can do as an organization and things that they can't do. I find that in the space, everyone wants to keep their young people, really kind of build things internally themselves for themselves and I firmly believe that in order for us to really serve the community at large, it really takes a village. And in order for that village to be complete and in full swing and in working, it means that you have to collaborate with others who are external to you, because if not, you kind of become gatekeepers of a student's experience. And I don't necessarily believe that that is the right way to go. And I would like to see more collaborations among nonprofits. No, I think you said everything. I was going to add to it, but I don't think as much to add. The only thing I would just add in there is the one student through that partnership that you mentioned. Jessica, one student is going to Comcast and then the other one is going to Hertz. Very cool. Yes. So one of the strengths that I know from both of you is that you both have a very strong learning orientation. And I remember, especially in the early days, you were just like sponges, like sucking up all of the information. I think maybe early on you and I had had conversations and then you were just like writing every single thing down. I was like, I don't know that I'm saying stuff that that's deep. And you're just like all the things. So I think that learning orientation has really helped you out in being able to accelerate as quickly as you have. Last question for me. I'm just curious of now knowing what you know about what it takes to start a nonprofit. Would you ever do it again? Yes. I would. I would. I think I would. I can't. This is a great starter question. Yes, but I think I would approach it differently in the regards to how we go about doing it. Just based on like the feedback that I gave you before, like grant writers sooner, really understanding who's going to be on the board, hiring the right people for the growth of the organization, like things like that. But these are all part of the learning lessons and the bruise and bumps that come with starting anything. So yeah, I've enjoyed it. So I would definitely start a nonprofit organization, particularly focus on tech education again. Yeah, I would definitely not change anything about what we've done. It's been a tremendous seven years. And obviously it's not been an easy feat, but I think that like, 
being able to see so many young people benefit from the program and then literally credit you for their success when you sometimes feel like you don't do enough, I think has made all of this work really worth it. And yeah, I would absolutely agree with Evan that there were moments where I wish I could go back and hire the grant writer back in 2014 when we first started. But I will also say that because of the fact that we didn't do those things, the amount of learning and the amount of, I guess you can say, value that we can add as like thought leaders in the space, for lack of a better word, because we've done all these roles, I think is really helpful. I just hope that anyone who starts a nonprofit organization knows that it's not going to be easy, but it's certainly going to be worth it. Awesome. Well, Evan, Jess, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. And it's been such a joy to see your progress over the last seven years. So what I'll make sure to do is put all of your information in the show notes. Is it okay if folks connect with you guys via LinkedIn? Yes. Yes. Yes, yes, for sure. Awesome. Thanks so much, everyone. This has been great. I certainly learned a lot and have a great weekend. Thank you. 